interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Good morning. Um, I'm glad to be here. And um, if I can do it this way, what I'd like to do is start off just by reminding some of you anyway of what we did last night and quickly telling others what we did last night and then pausing for a moment to give some of you opportunity to say something before we get going very far. So basically the theme of this entire weekend is the theme of the kingdom of God as the underpinning, the, the substructure of the whole of the Bible. If you're looking for something that will sort of piece the Bible together into a unified whole, people have offered many different options for that, and most of them are very good and wholesome and wonderful. But I'm suggesting to you that the most comprehensive theme in the Bible, now this does not necessarily mean it's absolutely or utterly comprehensive, but just compared to other things, the most comprehensive theme of the Bible is that of the reign of God, what we often call the kingdom of God in the Bible. And we spoke of how God is revealed in the Bible as the great king of everything, and this should clue us in that kingdom is a major theme in the Bible. We said that God created humanity with a special title that we'll see here even this morning as we talk a little more about this theme, a title that reveals that the earth, the world, the creation really is an empire. It's an empire, like an ancient Near Eastern empire. Only God is the great king rather than some pharaoh or some human emperor. And then we said also that we can see the theme of the kingdom of God because covenant is so important in the Bible. And covenants in the Bible are um, very much like the kinds of treaties or uh, international pacts that kings would make in the ancient world. And Even the covenants of the Bible reveal this royal theme, this imperial theme. And then finally, I suggested to you last night that we can understand and see, begin to see this theme of the kingdom of God because of the way the Bible describes the destiny of history or world history. And that is that the goal is that the earth may become submissive to the Lord just like all the creatures in heaven are submissive to him. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I was just using those four things to sort of kick us off here, to get us, give us an idea of where we're going the whole weekend, because what we're going to do is take each of those four parts, actually the last three of those four parts, and open them up a little bit, unfold them a little bit more to see exactly how these things could be true, to expand on those various themes. But before we take another step, Uh, I know that there are a couple of you who have pressing questions because some of you gave them to me as I walked through the door this morning. How's that? (laughs) Okay, so we're going to ask Cordell here to give his questions so that everybody can hear the one that he didn't want anybody else to hear that he had. Okay, Cordell, so. Last night it sounded like uh, your covenant structure and some other things that you said was um, in the Bible came from other kings or other cultures, cultures, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And to me, it all started with God. Mm-hmm. It comes from God, and they latched onto the same format. Good, good. Yeah, I think I told Cordell that I wish he had asked that last night because if if one person had that question, at least a dozen people had that issue. Let me see if I can give those of you that weren't here a little bit of uh, the background on this kind of question. Last night, being over there at the school and everything, um, I had to try to make things sophisticated and all that business. Um, I emphasize a lot that um, that things in the Bible could be understood more clearly if we set them within their ancient Near Eastern historical context. And so um, the problem, the reason for this is because if you don't do that, what you tend to do is provide a frame of reference around the Bible that 
is foreign to the Bible, like your frame of reference, my frame of reference, as North Americans living in the 21st century. That would be a foreign frame of reference. But we tend to do that, you see. And um, everyone provides some kind of frame around the Bible to understand the Bible. And I was sort of pressing this idea that the way to get at what the Bible's teaching is to set it in the world that it came out of. And so, I did try to draw a lot of parallels, in fact, I'll be doing that even this morning, between what the Bible teaches and what people in other cultures around Israel believe, like the Egyptians or like the Babylonians or the Assyrians or even sometimes the Canaanites. Now, I do need to clarify this, so, since so Cordell can finally get the idea here, uh, and that is that um, I'm not suggesting by any means in fact, this would be the opposite of what I believe. I'm not suggesting by any means that Israel's faith was simply derived from the cultures around it, that this was some kind of uh, evolution of religious thought in the world and Israel's just another one of those ancient Near Eastern um, cultures that had its own religion. Aren't we glad we're a part of that? No, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. But I am suggesting this, and that is sometimes we are so prone to read the Bible in modern terms, in terms that we are accustomed to, that sometimes we're blinded to what the Bible tells us because its frame of reference is so different from ours. And so sometimes noticing things that were going on in the cultures around Israel can alert us to things we've missed in the Bible. Does that make sense at all? I mean, just for example, this question of what is the universe? Well, last night, even though I didn't use this language, this is what I was saying in a word. And that is that the universe is an empire. Now, you know, who thinks of empires anymore? In fact, if I were to tell you that Christianity is imperialistic, you'd say, that's horrible. But in many respects, understood properly. Did you hear that? understood properly, in other words, I don't ta I'm not talking about American imperialism or things like that, but just simply biblical imperialism, the Bible really is imperial. The, the universe is God's empire, and he is the emperor over the world. Well, that notion is so foreign to us that even though it's everywhere in the Bible, whew, it passes right by us. So to remind ourselves that the world of the Bible was an imperial world where there were competing empires like Egypt or like the, in the New Testament, the Roman or the Greek empires or the Babylonian empires in the Old Testament. To realize that that's the kind of world that Moses lived in, that the prophets lived in, that Jesus lived in, alerts us to some of the realities in the Bible that well, sometimes we just don't get because we are reading it as North Americans living today. And so it's only in that sense. These are useful tools, sort of like archaeology. You know, you don't want to base your beliefs in the Bible on archaeology. Don't ever do that because uh, you don't want to make your trust in the Bible dependent on every turn of an archaeologist's spade. Trust me, you don't want that. I've done archaeology. I know archaeologists. You don't want to trust them, okay? Um, trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Don't trust them. Um, but at the same time, archaeology can be helpful and it can be good. And the same kind of thing would be true of the literature of the world around Israel as well, like Hammurabi, for example, that we mentioned. Yes? Would it be the case, then, that some of the great ideas in the Bible are expressed in terms of the culture, the people that we're writing it, that we're embedded in? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's a great question because you can put it sort of this way. Um, many times people will look at this as sort of an either-or issue. Either the things of the Bible were expressed in the culture of its day or they are normative for us today. Get the difference there? In other words, you can't be both. Uh, either it's true of all, for all time or it was expressed in the culture of its day. That is usually the way we set it up. You have to choose one or the other. Either it's true forever or it's set in the culture of its day. And I think that's a false dilemma. I think the answer is, how much of the Bible is culturally accommodated? Well, in my opinion, the answer is all of it. And then the question is, how much of the Bible is normative for us today? And the answer is all of it. So it's not just that some things in the Bible communicated to people in the days of the Bible. 
It all communicated to the people. It was all designed to do that. I mean, why didn't God reveal the Ten Commandments on floppy disk? It would have, it wouldn't have been revelation. It would have been irrelevant. Moses would have gone, hmm, well, that's interesting. Okay, so why didn't he put it, why did God have it put on tablets? Because that's the way you did important inscriptions in the ancient world. On tablets. And why two tablets? Because when you make covenants, treaties in the ancient world, you made duplicate copies. You made duplicates. And the Ten Commandments were written on the front and on the back. We know from the book of Numbers. Don't ask me where exactly, but somewhere in the book of Numbers. And by, oh, I need to tell you something else in just a moment. Um, but yeah, so front and back. And now we believe, rather than there being four on one tablet and six on the other, now most evangelicals understand that, um, that these are actually duplicates. One for God, one for us. Put in the meeting place between us and God, which was, of course, God's great footstool, the Ark of the Covenant. So, you know, there's an example. This communicated to them. But it also can communicate to us if we just learn about it a little bit. So what was common sense to them, we sort of have to pick up again because, after all, you're a bunch of goy, most of you anyway, just goyim anyway, yeah? A bunch of pagans. I mean, what were your ancestors doing while Father Abraham was worshiping the God of heaven and earth? If you're a Gentile, you know what your ancestors were doing. They were chasing after demons and worshiping rocks and trees and things like that. No wonder we don't understand the Bible, huh? Many of us in here are just flat-out pagans. And um, so we've got to understand better. How's that? What else is... What other burning things were brought up last night? Yes. This wasn't a burning thing from last night, but given what you're saying now, so if, if we understand the Word of God in the context of the culture, then the meaning we take from it is going to be more applicable and more understandable in terms of where we are now, that we make a big mistake by super... super uh, early morning, superimposing our own norms. Yeah, that's, that's right. I tend to think that's right. Um, in other words, we, the, many people will think what we need to do is get past all that cultural stuff and find the eternal principles. Okay, that's what, that's what we want, just the eternal principles. Get rid of all that old, old, old stuff. Just get the eternal truths. The problem is, how do you recognize what an eternal truth is? largely by what your culture today has told you is an eternal truth. Does that make sense? And so we evangelicals end up with what Thomas Jefferson forms. Remember the Jeffersonian Bible? Do you know about the Jeffersonian Bible? I'm a Virginian, so I know all about those guys. Um, uh, Jefferson literally took a pair of scissors and cut out of the Gospels everything that he did not think that was appropriate. And, of course, that, all, that meant all the miracles. I mean, who believes in miracles now? Ha! Now, that meant everything that seemed a little bit supernatural or irrational because Thomas Jefferson thought the eternal truths were those things that were rational from the 18th century perspective. Does that make sense? He just thought he was using common sense, but in fact what he was doing was filtering the Bible for its eternal truths through who he was. And that's what we all tend to do. Maybe not with a pair of scissors, but just by not reading certain parts. Okay, uh, let me give you an example. I've written a commentary on a few books, um, some for the Baptist, in fact, you should know that. Uh, one on First and Second Corinthians. I did it for the money, but... Uh, I mean, you know, here is, I'm a Presbyterian minister, so here's a Presbyterian Old Testament person writing a... Commentary for the Baptist on First and Second Corinthians. Okay, okay. So it was it was fun. Um, but then I I've also written a commentary on First and Second Chronicles, your favorite book in the Bible. And I remember one time in the midst of writing this commentary, I I got really excited about something and I called my wife and I said, Gina, Gina, come here and look at this. Look how the NIV and I like the NIV, but I said, look how the NIV has messed this up. And so I've, I'm getting ready to show her this problem in the NIV. And she stops and she says, wait a minute, is this going to bother my faith? <laughs> and I looked at her and I said this. I said, Gina, does Chronicles have anything to do with your faith? <laughs> and she said, no, go ahead, show me. <laughs> Now, see, my wife is a dear person, and she loves the Bible very much. 
and she didn't use scissors, but basically, for all practical purposes, Chronicles doesn't mean anything to her uh, for her real Christian life. And so she's basically using scissors metaphorically here to sort of use those parts of the Bible that she thinks are eternal and ignoring the parts that she doesn't think. And then she decides on the basis of what her evangelical background has taught her and what her 21st century American culture has taught her. And so I think that the way of wisdom is to do what we know to be true from our Protestant tradition, and that is that we read the Bible, the terminology that used to be used in the old Puritan days was by ordinary means, as opposed to reading the Bible um, under the church's sort of sometimes fantastic images of what the Bible should be saying. We read the Bible as a book written in history. And um, as a result of that, we're given better insights, in my opinion. Okay. So, if I may summarize what we've been saying in this way. Oh, I did make it fit. That's good. Um, That's what that piece of paper is, I take it, huh? This really is sort of an icon of what I was trying to say last night. And that is that the Bible teaches that the kingdom of God is a process, a process by which God, who reigns in general terms over everything forever and ever, from, from eternity past to eternity future, but in history has a particular sense in which he wants his kingdom, his reign to be realized. And that is, as Jesus put it in the Lord's Prayer, that God's will will be done throughout the earth, all over the earth, as it is done in heaven. So that in God's heavenly throne room, everything is done exactly as he wants it to be done. Now, sometimes the Bible uses the word heaven that's broader than just the throne room. But in that throne room, everybody does, even Satan does, exactly what God says. And Jesus' dream, Jesus' hope was not unique to him. It was something that the prophets had hoped for before him. It's something that the Israelites were hoping for in his day. And that was that God's will up in heaven will be done on earth throughout the world, not just in one little spot, but throughout the world. And what we're interested in doing is exploring how God brought this process about and how he is bringing it about and how he will bring it about. Because unfortunately, some of us have, from our modern evangelical point of view, lost the vision. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that people have lost this vision? In fact, it's it's funny to me as I watch people's faces when I say that the purpose of history is that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Often I get these blank stares like, I thought we were getting rid of the earth. I thought we were going to heaven. But you see, I didn't put it that way. I'm not going to give my sermon on Sunday morning away yet, okay? This is part of the punch of the sermon on Sunday morning. But the goal of history was not that we would all float away to heaven. The goal of history was that the earth would be made new. And that God's will would be done here as it is up there. And if you are a premillennialist, as many of you probably are, remember that God's will will be done on earth forever, not just for a thousand years. A thousand years is okay if you want it that way. Okay, do it. But after that, it will also happen in the new heavens and new earth forever, that this will be where you will be. And you know what happens to most evangelicals when they hear that? They say, you're a Jehovah's Witness. (laughs) I knew there was something about you. You're a Jehovah's Witness. And the problem is that um, we've lost sight of the fact, because Jehovah's Witnesses do use that a lot. If you've ever met Jehovah's Witnesses, they will, um, they'll use that against you. They'll say, where are you going to go? And you'll say, I'm going to go to heaven. And they'll say, no, you're not. Well, actually, they'll say, you're not going to go much of anywhere. You're just going to die because you're not a witness. But, um, the, the, but their idea is that the goal of history is to return to paradise. And unfortunately, we are the ones who have left the historical Christian tradition and the biblical portrait. Uh, it's unusual for evangelical Christians to believe that we're just going to float away one day and all live in these disembodied spirit existence for eternity. That's a, that's a new idea, newfangled stuff. Um, the reality is, is that evangelicals have believed and Protestants have believed consistently that the goal of the Bible is, thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. So um, that's interesting. So what's the process? What's the process by which God is bringing this about? Because I'm suggesting that this book tells the story of that process. That's exactly what I'm suggesting to you. I need to warn you of something. This is not my Bible. I lost my Bible of 20 years on an airplane Friday night. How's that? Isn't that horrible? Oh, well, I guess God wants me to get a new Bible, huh? So if I have trouble finding something in this Bible, you'll understand why, yes? Because everybody knows where things are in their Bible. Um, so I'm going to be going, oh, I don't know, I don't know. But anyway, um, the first thing we want to talk about this morning is your place, your place in this kingdom, the place of the human race in this kingdom. Now, we have to ask that question because I'm convinced that Christians and non-Christians are just as confused about who they are as they are confused about who God is. Last night we talked a little bit more about the confusion about God, that God is sort of seen as this grandfather, this popsy, and uh, who sort of sits on a rocking chair and everybody just gets to love on him and play in color with him. That that's the vision most people have of, of who God is, if they care about God at all. Um, but the reality is that the Bible has this portrait of God primarily as a great king who sits on his throne and who rules over things and welcomes us happily into his presence, but still the great king. But I'm convinced that people, while they're confused about who God is, they're just as confused about who they are. Now, I can remember a number of years ago... Um, seeing a newspaper article in a newspaper in Chicago. And uh, I picked it up because it was one of the sort of headlines on one of the center sections. And the title of the article was The Irony of Being Human. The Irony of Being Human. Let me tell you what that article talked about. It talked about an event that took place in a hotel just that week. It told first about a, a conference that was being held down in the convention room, down in the lower stories of this hotel down in downtown Chicago. And it was a New Age meeting. Okay, And you remember that? I know that's sort of passe now, but New Agers really did exist at one point. And uh, there was this famous celebrity who was speaking. And uh, when she finished, she, you know who I'm talking about, when she finished talking, she had everyone in the room stand up and lift their hands into the sky and begin to chant together, I am God. I am God. I am God. And they all became ecstatic with this notion that they were part of divinity, that all of them were gods. Now, that wasn't the irony of being human. It was wrong, but it wasn't the irony that this uh, newspaper article was talking about. The irony came by a contrasting scenario that was happening right at the very same time as people downstairs were saying, I am God up on the fourth floor, I think it was, there was a young woman who the day before had left her husband and left her children for a lover. And she had run away with this lover and they had spent the night there in that hotel. And then that morning, he got up and left her. She had lost everything. She lost her children. She lost her husband. She lost her lover. And so she reached into her purse and pulled out a pistol and killed herself. And the police reported that there was a note left on the nightstand next to the bed that said, don't cry about me. I'm not even human anymore. Now, there's the irony of being human in the world we live in today. That at the very same time, in the very same place, some people are saying, I am God, I am God, I am God. And other people are saying, I am nothing, I am nothing, I am nothing. That's the plight of living in our world today. And is it really any surprise? When you think about what our culture teaches us, on the one hand, it teaches us that you and I are nothing more than ooze oozing out of ooze, going back into ooze. That's all you are. You're no different than the mud out here on the street, except that your molecules were just lucky. So you're lucky mud. That's all you are. Okay? Yours just happened to fall together by chance into the form that is called human being, and that's nothing special. You're just lucky mud. That's one thing our culture teaches us from the crib. You realize that, don't you? I mean, it teaches us that to the point that no matter how far you try to distance yourself from it, it's hard to get it out of your blood. It's almost in your genes now that you are just an animal. 
a lucky animal. But at the same time, our culture today teaches people that they should behave like gods. I mean, you shouldn't submit yourself to rules or regulations. You should, especially religious rules and regulations, especially the Bible, shouldn't do that. What you're called to do by our culture is to make your own way. Make your own faith, make your own religion if you've got to have one, but you be sure you're the captain of your own fate. You be sure you are in charge of your life. You become your own God. It's the great American dream of autonomy, isn't it? So here we are in a culture that teaches us both of these things at the very same time. You're nothing more than lucky mud, but you should act like a God. Is there any wonder then that people out there in the world are confused? just as confused about themselves as they are about God. Well, I'm just glad that it's only out there in the world, you see, and that we don't have that problem. Yeah, and aren't you glad you're a Christian? Now you, you know exactly what you are, right? You mean, hey, I don't have that problem. It's just for pagans. They have the problem, not me, not you. Of course, you know I'm joking. It's, uh, we have the same kinds of problems. We just baptize them. We just, we just, we just make them sound religious, Okay. Um, on the one hand, we act like we're gods. You know what it's like. You get a few gifts of the Holy Spirit, like in Corinth. And suddenly you think you've got it all together and you're superior to everyone else, a cut above every other Christian because you play the piano better than anybody or you have some special supernatural gift that's been given to you that other people don't have or you have a theological understanding, intellectual abilities given to you by God that make you a cut above everyone else. And so you walk around behaving like a god, expecting everyone else to submit to you like they are supposed to submit to Jesus and appreciate you like they're supposed to appreciate Jesus. We call it being filled with the Holy Spirit sometimes, being blessed by the Holy Spirit with gifts of leadership, when really what it is is arrogance and self-deification. Are you with me on that? Of course, there's no one in this church like that. So we're talking about the other church down the road. That's one side of what it means to be a Christian today. But there's another side of what it means to be a Christian today. And that is that we baptize this theme of nothingness. And somehow we think that the less we think of ourselves, the holier we are. You can call it holy wormism. That's what I call it. That if you feel like a worm, that that's a good thing. That if you feel like you are nothing before God, that's a wonderful, joyous thing. We even quote sometimes Psalm 22, I am not a man but a worm, and think that's a positive thing. When in reality, in that psalm, it's a complaint, it's a lament. It's saying, you, God, are treating me like a worm. I'm a man, not a worm. But we all tend to think that the smaller and less significant and the, the weaker and the closer to nothing we think of ourselves as being, the more God is pleased with us. Well, see, we have the same problem that the world does. We don't know who we are either. And so there's no wonder that we confuse our children. (laughs) It's no wonder that we jump back and forth between these two extremes because we need a portrait of who we are. And that's where this theme of our place in the kingdom of God comes in, you see, because I'm suggesting to you that if you begin to read the Bible as a kingdom book, an imperial book, then there's a special place for the human race in this empire. And it's this place in the kingdom of God that gives us the definition of who we are. Let's take a look. Last night I mentioned it to you, but let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1. I do know where that is in this Bible. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll read verse 26 and following. I just want to make sure everyone knows these verses in the Bible. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I will give, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The end of creation, the high point of creation. When God put humanity in the world. What I want us to think about is the title that God has given to us and then the job that God has given to us here. Because both of these are imperial jobs. They're kingdom jobs. The phrase image of God is nicely balanced in a way that will keep us, if we'll hold on to it, it will keep us from the extremes that we usually go to of thinking we're gods or thinking we're nothing. Image of God. Just take that phrase as a convenient way of thinking about it. And let's emphasize the first word first, image. The word image. Now, there were all kinds of images in the ancient world. Some of them were made of gold and silver and diamond studded. Uh, some of them were made of huge, granite, colossal images. Others were tiny little things, about the size of a Barbie doll or a Ken doll, made out of dirt, made out of clay. And this would be something that practically every family would have. They would make little gods out of them, and they would also make little playthings with them. And of course, you know, when you make things and bake them in the sun, and make clay things that are baked in the sun, they, they don't hold together very well. They usually break, and that's one of the reasons why we have a lot of these, because they would just throw them out the window and make another one. And the phrase image could mean these grand, colossal, granite, gold and silver, diamond-studded images, or it could refer to a tiny little, insignificant little Ken and Barbie doll image as well. And so we have to ask the question, in what way is the Bible using this phrase or this word image in the phrase image of God? And you know. You know what Genesis 1 tells us, or Genesis 2, I should say, of how God made Adam. How did God make Adam? Out of silver and gold? Out of diamonds and onyx and turquoise? Did he make him out of granite? How did he make him? Out of the dirt. Lucky mud, I told you. Okay. <laughs> Actually, blessed mud is what it is. He made him out of the dirt. So when the Bible says that Adam was the image and Eve was the image of God, it's emphasizing something with that word image. And that is that even before sin came into the world, Adam and Eve were humble images of God. They were not gods. They were images, tiny, little, three-dimensional replicas of God. Uh, my wife and I survived seminary and graduate school like a lot of students do. We did a lot of house-sitting. Do you do that up here? Wealthier families will hire students to house sit and take care of their children sometimes and things like that. And I remember one particular family. We did it all the time, but this one stands out because it was a very nice house with all kinds of very nice things. And they had two little children. One was about two and a half. The other was about five or six. And the little boy, little two and a half year old boy, he hardly said anything. But he had one phrase that he loved to repeat over and over and over again. And this was the phrase, that's breakable. And you know why. His mother was saying that all the time. Because everything in their house was breakable. And he learned very early on that breakable was something you really needed to remember. That's breakable. Every time you'd walk near anything, that's breakable. Walk near the TV. That's breakable. Walk near the silver. That's breakable. Walk near a glass. That's breakable. Uh, in many ways, that's what Genesis 1 is saying when it says you and I are images of God. It's saying you're breakable. Even before the fall, Adam was not invincible. Adam was not um, a god. He was breakable clay. And as we know, that fragile Adam did not succeed very well. He did not last. In fact, his, um, fragile, his, his fragile qualities is shown in the fact that he did succumb to sin and to temptation. We're going to talk about what a broken Adam and Eve look like a little bit later, but at the very beginning, humble. So if you ever thought you were a god, give it up. 
If you ever thought that just because you have some gifts of the Holy Spirit, you are somehow high and lifted up above everyone else, you need to go back and read the book of First and Second Corinthians again and realize that their problem was they thought they were a lot bigger and better and grander than they really were. And Paul had to let them know that they were breakable, quite breakable, humble images. But now, here the flip side of this balanced title. Not just breakable, not just images, but images of God. Of God. Mind you, you are not in the likeness of Mother Earth. You're not in the likeness of a mountain. You're not in the likeness of some species, some other species here on this planet. You're not in the likeness of anything else, nothing like the moon or the stars or even the universe. If you were in the likeness of the universe, even that would be less than what you are. That would not be worthy of you. Because you, more than any other creature, more than any other aspect of creation... You are the likeness of the creator of all things. And that means you stand out. That means you stand above the rest of creation. That means you are absolutely magnificent. Now, I know it's a hard thing to hear Christians talk about people being magnificent, but it's the reality of what the Bible says. And in fact... Until you begin to believe that you really are a magnificent image of God, you'll never understand the tragedy of sin. How horrible sin is and what it does to us. I mean, when was the last time you cried because you saw a piece of paper blowing down the street? Remember that old commercial with the Native American was watching exhaust come out of cars and uh, trash blowing down the street and a little tear came down his face. Remember that one? We always say, oh, that's so nice, you know, don't pollute and that sort of thing. Um, but seldom do we sit around crying because we find some trash on the street. Why then do you weep? Why do you stop your car and get out and look and see what is going on when a human being is lying on the side of the street? It's because you sense that there's something special going on here. This is something greater than a piece of trash. This is something greater than lucky mud. This is, even if you don't use the expression, this is the image of the Creator here. The representation of the Creator right here on the side of the street. How inappropriate for the image of God to be lying on the side of the street. And don't you sense the tragedy when you see friends Becoming ill when you see spouses passing away before your eyes, when you look at yourself and you realize what's happening to you. And don't you just sense deep within yourself, this is not what we were made to experience. This is why the Bible says that death is the last enemy. And that Jesus will one day conquer this, but it's the last enemy. You see, before you understand the tragedy of sin, you have to understand how absolutely magnificent you are. And I mentioned last night how this phrase, image of God, was used of royalty in the ancient world. Do you remember that? And so when Moses is using this in Genesis, and when the rest of the Bible uses it, it's speaking of humanity as worthy and valuable, having the wonder of a splendid ancient Near Eastern emperor. That's what every single one of you, every single one of you is. A glorious, magnificent image of God. And that's why in my tradition, the first question and answer of my catechism is this. It is, what is the chief end and goal of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to, you've probably heard this before, glorify God, but it doesn't stop there. And to enjoy him forever. What? Now, we don't talk about that much, the enjoyment of God stuff. We always like to glorify God because, you know, that's holy worm. Okay? Alone, it's holy worm. But notice what that catechism question says and answer says. It says, to glorify God and for you to enjoy him forever. That means 
Not only is God going to be glorified, but the Bible tells us we will be glorified. We will become like him. And thus, another catechism in my tradition says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? How may you live and die happily, sometimes it's translated. And most evangelical Christians today would just say, well, who cares? Living and dying happily, we're not supposed to be involved with that. We're really supposed to be honoring and glorifying God exclusively. And my happiness and my comfort really doesn't matter. But the reality is, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, there is great reason for believing and hoping for and striving for the knowledge that will make you able to live and die happily. And that catechism goes on to say you have to know three things. Your great sin and misery, this is called the triple knowledge. The way of salvation has been given in Christ. And then the way of gratitude and thankfulness. And it's lovely to realize that you and I need to begin to value what God has made us. Think about what a difference it would make between you and your spouse. I mean, I'm absolutely convinced that if people were just to treat each other as the image of God, I'm convinced war would cease. It would stop. I'm convinced divorce would be out the window. It would never happen again if people treated each other as the likeness of God and what that's worthy of. I'm convinced that child abuse, spouse abuse would never happen again. I'm convinced that all of our efforts to repeal abortion laws and the like, it, would, it wouldn't even be an issue. I mean, what is it that makes us want to stand up for, the, for those human beings that cannot speak for themselves? What is it? It's they are the likeness of God and thus valuable. And so we begin to see that human beings are given a very special place in the world, a wonderfully central place in the world. What is that place? Well, humanity has been given the role of being, as we're going to see here in just a moment, the instrument by which God brings his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Remember how I told you last night that the, the purposes of a, an emperor or a king in the ancient world could be summed up this way. He would have insight into the things of heaven and he was supposed to enforce them on earth. That in many respects is what God is going to tell us in just a minute is true for every single one of us here. Okay, so that's our title, the balanced image likeness of God. What's our goal? What's our, what's our job? The job that we have is given to us right here in Genesis 1 also. Listen to what it says. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Now, I know that for many of us, we, we know that's in the Bible, but we never think about the fact that the whole Bible really is focused on just that, that humanity is fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdues, and has dominion over it. Now, those are five things. We don't want to go into five things, but let's just sort of split them into two for the sake of convenience. On the one hand, God says he wants his image, his noble, regal image, to multiply. And on the other hand, he says, he wants his noble, regal image to have dominion. Multiplication and dominion. We can put it this way, that there really is a twofold role for the human race, one being multiplication and the other being dominion over the earth. This is what God established the image of God to do in this world. Why? Why would God want his image to do these things? What is it about being an image that connects it to multiplying and having dominion? Well, to understand that, you've got to go back in time again, back to the way kings used images of themselves. Remember last night I told you about Ramses and all those images that he had of himself? Well, this wasn't just true of Ramses. It was true of practically every single king. In fact, every king who was worth his salt, every king that was worthy of being called a king, had lots and lots and lots of images made of themselves. And they spread them out everywhere. 
And they had just tons of these images because the way in which ancient kings showed and displayed their glory was by how many images of themselves they had in their kingdoms. That's the way kings showed that they were special, that they were glorious. I mean, if you only had one or two images of yourself, well then, you were nothing of a king. But if everywhere you turned in the empire, there's another image of the king, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one, that's a glorious king in the world of the Bible. So now we know why God said to the human race, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Because God's destiny, God's plan was that he be glorified by the multiplication of his image. Now, in the beginning, multiplying would have been a simple thing. Basically, Adam and Eve would have had babies, and they would have done the image of God thing, and then they would have had babies, and they would have done the image of God thing, and it had gone on and on and on like that, and the world would be filled up with images of God. And God would be very pleased because he's now greatly glorified by the numbers of images that are there in the world. But we know something happened, don't we? What happened? Sin, yes. Yeah. Starts with S, ends with N, and I'm in the middle, right. Um, Sin happened, and as a result, this multiplying thing became very complicated, very complex. In fact, you'll remember in Genesis chapter 3 that God comes to Eve after they've eaten the fruit, and what does he say to Eve? In pain you will bring forth children. I will greatly increase your pain, your agony in childbearing. He's saying to Eve, Eve, you're still my image. Even though sins come into your life, you're still my image. You've got to continue to multiply. But now it's not going to be so easy. Now it's going to be very complicated. And it's not just the physical pain, I think, that that passage is talking about. Every mother in here will tell you that it's hard to have a baby. It's no picnic. But they'll also tell you that the pain doesn't stop once you leave the delivery room. Am I telling the truth, mothers? Uh Uh-huh. Uh, the pain continues all through life as you see what your children do to each other, like Cain and Abel. When you see what they do to the world around them, when you watch them fail. And even if they're not failing, the fear you have that they might. <laughs> and the inevitable, you know inevitably your precious children and your precious grandchildren are going to face serious illness. And they're going to face disappointments and hardships and death. There's great pain in this multiplication now because of sin. And as a result, as the Bible unfolds this notion of the image of God multiplying itself, it's no longer simply having physical children who sort of automatically do the right thing. Instead, multiplying in the Bible becomes a spiritual thing too, doesn't it? That it becomes not just having children, but raising children in the ways of the faith. Have you ever wondered why in Deuteronomy that in the great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that great famous passage that um, the Israelis like even today is sort of the centerpiece of faith in many respects. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the very next thing that is said right there in that very same chapter is that you shall teach these things to your children. Why is it that the teaching of children is so important that the faith be passed from one generation to the next to the next? Why do you spend so much money educating your children? Why do you spend so much time bringing them to church? Why do you work so hard to see your children have the Christian faith? It's because you are multiplying images of God, redeemed images of God, when you raise your children to follow the Savior. That's a painful experience, isn't it? It's your role in life, not just to have babies as God gives them to you or doesn't give them to you, but to have your own babies become followers of Jesus. But it's even broader than that when you read the rest of the Bible, too. And that is evangelism and raising people in the faith who are not your biological descendants. Even that is seen as multiplying. So Paul calls Timothy, my son, my son. The multiplication that we find in the Bible is not simply your own children coming to faith, but it's also reaching out to others. When you do Sunday school, do you have Sunday school in this church? Do we have any Sunday school teachers in this church? Uh huh. You're multiplying. Even if you don't have your own babies yourself, your own biological descendants, 
You are multiplying redeemed images of God when you take care of the nursery or when you teach Sunday school. That's why everybody in here should volunteer for nursery work. Mm, It's your way of fulfilling your purpose in the kingdom of God. Because God has this in mind. One day, the world will be absolutely filled up with redeemed images of God from shore to shore over every piece of this geography and they will come from every tribe and every nation and they will gather around his throne and they will worship him in the new heavens and the new earth. And when that happens, he will be glorified as the one whose images are spread throughout the world. You ever wonder why you keep on having babies? I understand why women have one child. I really do. They don't know any better. Okay, But I have never understood why a woman would have more than one baby. I remember when our daughter was born, I said, Lord, thank you for Becky. She's magnificent. And thank you for not making me a woman to have to go through this. Okay, Because I just adore mothers. They're just fantastic. But what is it about us that makes us want children and think in terms of children and things like that? It's because God made us to do this. So that his image would be present throughout the world. So he would be declared to every power in heaven and on earth that he is the king. You want to know who is the king? Look at his image. It's everywhere. Now that's one side of what we were made to do in the kingdom of God. The other side we were made was for this thing called dominion, shall we call it. Remember, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Now, to be sure, these themes have been abused in Western culture to not to mean dominion, but to mean exploitation. Just use the world any way you want to. That, of course, is not what God had in mind. He did make us to be managers of the world, though, to have geographical dominion. There's this numerical dimension of the image of God, and then there's this geographical dimension of the image of God. It's fascinating, really, when you think about it, because it fits perfectly with the way kings thought about themselves in the world of the Bible. How did kings demonstrate their the limits and the extents of their kingdoms? Just think about it for a minute. What do we do when we go someplace as North Americans, as people from the United States? What do we do when we conquer a territory? What's one of the first things you see on television, on CNN? Yeah, you see a flag. I mean, we even did it on the moon, right? Set up an American flag on the moon like we own that place because we got there first. I don't get it, but nevertheless, that's what we do. And uh, that's what we did in Afghanistan. There were American flags flying everywhere in Afghanistan and perhaps in Iraq, too, at some point. Um, But anyway, that's what we do. That's our symbol that shows this is our territory. We have conquered this territory. Well, they had all kinds of ways they did this in the ancient world. But one of the ways they did this was this. As soon as you took someone else's property, as soon as you expanded your empire where someone else used to rule, the first thing you would do is tear down the images of that king and put up your image. Do you remember when the former Soviet Union fell? Do you remember all those newscasts that we saw, constant newscasts of the um, statues of Marx and Lenin and Stalin being torn down by people? And, you know, it was kind of a rush at first. I remember, you know, you sort of watched this the first day and go, wow, that is unbelievable. I had been over there and I had seen these things before all this collapsed. And so, you know, they really are everywhere, everywhere you go. In the former Soviet Union, there were statues of Lenin and Marx and of Stalin. And um, just remarkable how this is true. And I remember one Polish translator, as we were over there, my wife and I, doing street evangelism. I said, why do they have all these statues everywhere? And they said, well, they remind us of who's really in charge. And that's right. Okay, because they had red, so, red army soldiers everywhere, statues of them, and statues of the great heroes of that part of the world. And when we saw them tearing down those images, at first it was sort of a rush, and it was exciting to see that. But, you know, after the second day, or the third day of them dancing on these statues, we're all, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was wondering, hey, why don't you get a job or something? I mean, it's over. Let's do something now. But they're still dancing on the statues. Now, we don't have much of that in this culture of ours over here. We don't understand how that works, but these were very powerful symbols of oppression 
Very powerful symbols. And that's why people were able to party and to dance on these broken statues for days and days and days. It's because now they were free. Now we know why God put his image in the world. It was so that as his redeemed people expanded beyond the borders that were previously held by God, by his people, as they expanded geographically, they were expanding the geographical limits of the kingdom of God. It started off in the Garden of Eden. It was his royal garden. And he put his image there. But what did he say to his image? Just take care of this little garden. That'll be fine. We'll have a good time here. and We'll let the rest of the world just go its own way. Is that what he said? Mm -mm. He put, he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, the Bible says. It was a special place. The whole world wasn't this Edenic, paradisical garden. One place was. And then he said to this man and this woman, I want you to fill up the whole world and subdue the whole world. I want every inch of this earth to be turned into a garden of Eden. And you are the one to do it. The human race, by multiplying and by having dominion, was the instrument by which God would bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. It's not through dogs and cats. And don't you find yourself sometimes saying, oh man, look at that dog. He doesn't do anything but eat and sleep. Man, I'd love to have a life like that. I mean, just look. I mean, he just loves. I mean, he's just sitting there sleeping all day, eating and goes out and plays when he wants to and just comes back, sits down, sleeps and eats. You know, What a life that dog has. Well, thanks be to God you're not a dog. Thanks be to God you have the burdens and the responsibilities that you have. That you are actually the image, the likeness of God destined to fill up the entire earth. Now, the reality is, as we're going to see, human beings, well... They keep failing. Okay? Now, we do get up and keep trying, don't we, in many different ways. In fact, the history of the Bible is God sort of restarting over and over and over and over again as people just keep failing and failing and failing and failing. But there was one person that lived in this world, a human being like you and me, tested and tempted in every way like you and I are, that didn't fail. He actually accomplished what Adam and Eve were commanded to do in the very beginning. That's why he's called the second Adam. The second man, the last man, the last great man. The finale of the human race, the culmination of human history. Because he did what Adam and Eve and all of us following their trail have failed to do. Do you remember his name? Yeah, his name is Jesus. You wonder why Jesus is so important? It's not just because he's second person of the Trinity. It's because he's the perfect human being. And so what is it that the Bible tells us? It's through Jesus that we, the redeemed images of God, actually fill up the world with redeemed images. It's through his power, through his grace, through being in him and associated with him that we find ourselves actually reaching the entire world with the gospel. And it is through Jesus, who now reigns in heaven and one day will have all of his enemies put under his feet, that we will reign as well. So what was ordained in the beginning for the human race is fulfilled in Christ's first coming and in his second coming and by you and me as we walk in this day in between those two comings, in his spirit, in his power, and in his name. Now, I don't know about you. I can live for that. I mean, I can give up some of the pleasures of this world and some of the shiny, glittery things of this life for that. If God has given you so much, Paul says, 
Shall he not also give you all things? And the answer is, yes, he will. For those who are in the Adam who did not fail. So you can see then that at the very center of this kingdom is the human race and the history of the human race culminating, as it were, in Christ the Lord. And that is what we're going to be seeing all through the Bible is that which God uses as the means by which his purpose for history is done.